This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Near Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hello. Um, and so as we mentioned uh, the previous couple of weeks, we are now working from home, like much of the rest of the nation. So that's why the sound quality might sound slightly different um, than when we're in the studio. So this week, we're talking about why banks have got a bad reputation, fund managers that are switching up their portfolios, why the mortgage market is grinding to a halt, and why coronavirus means that scammers are thriving. So before we get going, let's have a very quick check on what's been happening in the market, Stan. So the markets, um, so last week we're, we're looking a bit more optimistic and certainly at the start of this week, but um, we're recording this on the 1st of April. Unfortunately, markets have gone back down again. People are a bit worried about um, sort of where the, what could happen with the US and, and some potential death numbers there from coronavirus. Um, also, there's been some pretty gloomy manufacturing figures out from Asia Um on the UK market in particular, um, now banks make up a really large chunk of the FTSE 100. So when banks issue bad news they and their share prices fall, that will tend to drag down the whole market. And that, that's exactly what we've just seen. Um, the banks have still come out and said, we're, we're bowing to pressure from regulators. We're, we're not going to pay any dividends this year. So when you think that someone like Lloyd's has got approximately 2.4 million shareholders, most of them are the general public. Um, now, that bank, people own those shares specifically for the dividend. Um, if you go back to just before the financial crisis, 2007, it was it was yielding I don't know eight nine percent. Um, so when the, when the financial crisis happened, people didn't sell their Lloyd shares. They kept hold of them, thinking that at some point they'll go back to the old days of really generous dividends. Um, and then last summer, it made this announcement saying, "Well, we recognise we've got so many retail shareholders, we're going to start paying dividends every quarter from June 2020." So. We're now at this, we're literally months away from investors getting more frequent dividends from Lloyds, and it's kind of taken this sort of carrot that's been dangling in front of their noses, it's taken it away. Um, and now people are having to sort of stomach no income and a big hit to the share price for these sort of banking stocks this year as well. So imagine that's gone down very poorly among investors. Yeah, and for, it's, uh, it is frustrating, but you know, as we've talked about before on the podcast, Companies that are cutting their dividends is kind of the right thing to do at the moment. Um, you know, they really do need to preserve the cash to help keep their own businesses ticking over. And also, in the case of banks, it, it just gives them that little bit more that they can actually use to help their own customers and clients as well get through this crisis. That was part of the argument, wasn't it, from regulators that banks couldn't very well say that they didn't have enough spare money to be able to lend to struggling small businesses at the moment if they were then paying out millions of pounds in dividends. The kind of the the view of that didn't look very good, did it? No, not really. I mean, and and I think that um, you know we've seen nearly a fifth of the of the companies in the FTSE 100 now say they're not going to be paying dividends uh, for the sort of the near future. So, and I think that number is just going to keep going up. Um, companies know that it's just it's just inappropriate to be 
to paying out this cash to shareholders at the moment. And I do hope that shareholders understand this as well, that they don't get too frustrated. Um, you know, everyone is going to share this pain. Um, and, you know, if we all sort of try and give the support as much as possible, uh, we'll all get through this this crisis as well. Uh, actually, it's just one sort of final point on that. It's interesting to see a couple of companies actually going out to raise money rather than hand cash to shareholders. They're asking shareholders to give them more money. Um, a good example is SSP, which runs all the sort of the food shops in uh, airports and train stations they did a big fundraise last week um and now auto trader is doing the same thing and they're sort of saying well if we have a bit more cash now we don't perhaps have to worry about um breaching our banking confidence if we've got lower earnings near term and also it, it help it will help us position ourselves very well that in the aftermath of the crisis we can then jump on any opportunities and we should be have a strong enough balance sheet to to do things so they're they're, they're it's quite a shrewd move there they're thinking strategically um and what's so, been the kind of view from investors so far is there actually appetite to put more money into these companies at such an uncertain time well, Auto traders literally on the phones. No, it's brokers would be on the phones now to people to say, you know, how much you want to put up. But when SSP did it last week, they got a very large chunk of money in a matter of hours, and it was pretty obvious because mm. uh, the shares had done so well since they joined the stock market safe so i don't know five five six years ago, um, and the price has now come back almost to the same point. It's reset to. Almost, it's almost like saying, do you want to go back in time and give you the chance to buy these shares at a really cheap price? Because um, if the world returns to normal, this company's got considerable growth opportunities. So uh, I wasn't surprised that they managed to raise loads of money really quickly. And so as markets have moved, some fund managers have been shifting their portfolios, some in the right way, and some have been kind of sneakily shifting away from what they're meant to be doing. So Dan, you've been keeping an eye on this. What examples have you got? Yeah, so I, when I was thinking that um, in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to a few fund managers and they're sort of, they wouldn't tell me what they're doing because they said, well, we need to wait to the end of the first quarter so we can then um, sort of take stock of what's going on and we'll, we'll issue our sort of quarterly reports. But we have had a few funds and investment trusts already come out and sort of tell us what's going on. Um, and there are some very interesting moves, things. So, I'll give you an example is um, an investment trust called Midwind. Um, it said it's it's sold down some of its exposure to the U.S., such as banks and railways. It's a bit concerned about how the U.S. seems to be a bit behind the curve with its containment measures and and thinks it's going to have um, an economic hit uh, a lot harder than we're currently seeing at the moment. So what what it's done is sort of saying we reduce exposure to that area and. Actually, we're seeing Asia already start to bounce back from its early containment measures for coronavirus. So it's increased its exposure to Asia. So, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. Um, it's very sort of logical thinking. But some other funds are seen to be doing something that was a bit more bizarre. So Scottish Investment Trust. Now, this is a value fund. It likes to look for things that um, are cheap, perhaps, because they're going having a few problems at the moment, but it will buy the shares thinking that they'll at some point rebound. But what it's actually done is sold loads of its value things and bought a load of defensive stocks like utility companies, which aren't necessarily very cheap. So there's a two things you've got to consider here. First of all, 
when the market rebounds, when, the, when investors are finding a bit more confidence, you'll find the stuff that's been sold down heavily, like the value things, they they could be the first to, to bounce back. Um, so by reducing exposure to that, you're essentially missing, potentially missing out from this big rally and defensive stocks won't be rallying when the market picks up again. Um, and, and, and second, it's also the kind of a, a bit of a red flag, isn't it, for investors that if you're buying a fund manager who's got a specialism in a certain thing and you're buying them for a certain purpose, you don't then want them to switch to doing something else that another fund you might own is already doing. Exactly. So there's this big red flag called style drift. This is kind of a terrible thing to do, especially in a market downturn. So you can't. You sometimes see it when a fund manager sees a big opportunity to potentially make some money, um, but investing in things they normally wouldn't do, um, and they shouldn't really be tempted to do this. They should stick with the same investment process they've had all along and not try and deviate from it. So we saw Neil Woodford do exactly this. He went into territories which he wasn't familiar with and ultimately he messed up and it cost him his own business. Um, so star drift is something which is not a good thing to see. People should be sitting tight and doing exactly what they do best, even though it may not be making the money now. If they've done it and they've proven the process in the past, some point their star will come back into fashion. And there was another one that I spotted that came out um, late last night, um, so right at the end of, of March, um, and it was Mark Barnett, um, which I'm sure lots of people know, so he worked at Invesco um, and runs income funds there. And he has come out and said that previously he'd said that he wanted to sell down his unlisted and unquoted holdings, um, so those that aren't listed on the stock market. He's now come out and said that he plans to offload them sooner than, than planned, um, um, but they've been revalued, and the value of those holdings are now 60% lower than they were before. So that represents right. a 5% hit to put to the portfolios um, when he when he actually manages to sell them. And assuming he manages to sell them at that current valuation, they could drop in price further or they could, I guess, rise as well. Um, so that's another kind of big move that's as a result of a couple of things. He's seen quite a lot of outflows from um, investors, so investors redeeming their money. Um, and the last thing that you want if you're seeing lots of outflows is to have these kind of unlisted, unquoted holdings that are harder to sell and take much longer to sell. So he's accelerating his plan to sell those off. But that's a, that's big funds and, and obviously a quite well-known manager making quite a big move. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, we've had fund manager um, Alistair Mundy on the podcast before. He runs the Temple Bar Investment Trust. Um, now, he's uh, clearly had some very sort of tense discussions with the, the board of directors for that investment trust, um, who they, they were a bit concerned about how much gearing they had in the trust. So this is the amount of borrowing uh, extra money to invest in the markets. So when when you've when you're borrowing more money and the markets are falling, there's a high chance that you're going to underperform the broader market. So Temple Bar sort of essentially agreed that they were going to sell down some of their holdings to, to essentially get rid of this sort of gearing facility. I'm sure, again, you know, if you're a fund manager, you don't really want to be selling stuff in the current market. So um, I imagine that didn't go down very well. But what, what he's actually done is he's sold the sort of the less cyclical things so, and, and now has a greater weight of value. So there is no style drift there, um, but it does show that perhaps 
I don't know, maybe they're a bit too aggressive going into the downturn, too much gearing. So Witten, uh, multi-manager investment trust, same thing. It sort of turned out and said, you know, we were quite highly geared and now we've actually underperformed and, you know, hands up, maybe they made a mistake. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you, if, you, if you've got any funds in your portfolio, do have a read all these announcements coming out to see what they've been doing. So banks are dominating the headlines with news of the dividend cuts and people desperate to get hold of them on the phone to help with their finances. Uh, the public opinion of this sector isn't really great at the best of times, but now it could actually get even worse. So I thought it'd be a good in- opportunity to introduce Declan Ahern, who's a director at the consultancy group Brand Finance um, and is an expert on how we view the sector. So first of all, welcome, Declan. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So, I mean, really, can you can you sort of just summarise what why are banks perceived so poorly by the public? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, um, and I think it largely stems from legacy issues around the global financial crisis. That and banks have really struggled to recover in terms of public perception post that crisis. Uh, I think fundamentally, there's also a bit of a deeper issue though. Uh, in terms of how consumers perceive uh, banks versus other sectors when asked about reputation and trust. Uh, So, for example, Brand Finance conducts global research every year. Um, We cover 10 sectors across 32 countries. And banks uh, consistently, on that research, uh, obtain the lowest reputation and trust scores across all of those sectors. But I think fundamentally, when you're asking trust and, and reputation questions in industries, if, if you're asking someone, do you trust a technology brand, for example, and we all know what's been, what's been happening with the likes of, of uh, Facebook um, and, and the big tech players recently, typically people are responding in terms of, I trust them to provide their technological service, um, not necessarily a, a deep data issue, whereas banks are... are much more prone to people thinking very specifically, personally about their money. Um, and I think when you're asking questions about their money, whether people trust a bank to to look after their money, um, to, to do the right thing, that's a, a very different question to to trust in, in a technological service, for example. And is that those kind of low trust levels, is that across the board or are there some differences in banks, whether, I mean, we've seen lots of new challenger banks come out or does it depend on um, different banks and their individual reputations? Um, On on aggregate, across the board um, and across country, those scores are consistently lower. However, naturally within the industry, that that does vary. so what we have seen quite interestingly is um, banks such as Nationwide, being a building society, performed much better in terms of trust and reputation. Um, we hypothesize that that may have something to do with how it's positioned itself as not a necessarily a, a true bank, being um, a building society, and therefore be, uh, benefits from not having those kind of shackles of, of the negative associations of, of banking in general. Um, we also see, you know, the new challenger banks like Monzo and Starling performing particularly well in, in reputation and trust. Um, and, you know, that perhaps is a, a bit of crossover in terms of um, how they have spawned post the financial crisis. They don't have all of these legacy issues 
uh, and typically provide a, a much stronger um, customer service and offering than than normal incumbent banks. So what I think that people um, have a have sort of a bad experience with with banks perhaps because they they go into a branch and they and they, they find that there's not enough staff working there they're sort of encouraged to try and do everything themselves using technology so I, I, like saying i think with challenger banks it, there's no bad memories at the moment are there so people's only experience is simply a, you know a simple app and just moving money from one place to another do you think that that ultimately that that gives challenger banks such a big advantage at the moment uh, correct. I, I definitely think so. Um, you know, there's there's kind of a, a running train of thought that challenger banks are typically only for, you know, younger consumers um, and baby boomers not necessarily getting involved in, in the wave of new challenger banks and using their services. There's an overwhelming amount of data that says that that is not true. Um, average age of, of users of, of challenger banks is, is somewhere between 30 and 40. Um, however, what I would say, though, is that, you know, there will be a segment of society that still relies and prefers on um, in-person banking, in-branch banking, you know, despite the perceived low level of service and, and lack of personnel on the floor and how frustrating some of those experiences can be. Um, I think, uh, you know, there is difficulty in uh, being a purely digital-only bank. And we've seen the likes of Starling um, form a partnership with, with the Postal Service, for example, to, to improve their distribution network and, and have that kind of physical uh, presence to benefit from. Would you think that they could look to some other sectors to, um, you know, to, to, to get some ideas or take best, best practice? I don't know whether there's other part, you know, sort of they talk about themselves providing a service to a customer. Um, can they look to something like the retail sector for any influence at all? Yeah, I think there's, there's always learnings to be had uh, across sectors, but, uh, you know, the financial sectors is very unique in, in terms of how consumers respond to to brands. Um, and we can see that in these average trust and, and reputation scores. Um, you know, when, when the question of, of individuals' money and um, other financial needs come into it, people have very different expectations on banking brands versus versus other consumer brands. Um, you know, what what I would say, though, is that I think historically what incumbent banking brands have failed to do is put the customer first. And uh, ultimately what these challenger banks have done and what the entire model revolves around is servicing the customer with extreme ease, ease of use and um, really building a customer-centric model, which I think slowly but surely we're seeing the incumbent banking brands realize and, and try and shift their model towards so something like something like greg's that seems to have a reputation for giving customers exactly what they want do you think that that's that's the role model for the banking sector perhaps or yes uh, i used greg's in a in a recent presentation i gave um as a great example of, of something that the incumbent banking brands could learn from naturally um you know greg's uh, has made this unbelievable shift in its business model over the last 12 months or so. Um, 
And if you asked consumers 18 months to 24 months ago what, what Greg's stood for, it was, you know, sausage rolls and, and dare I say, bad coffee. Um, and essentially what they did was they just listened to, to the market and listened to what the consumer was wanting because consumer tastes have shifted towards a much more health-conscious version of, of food consumption. Um, you know, Greg's now provides... I mean, the, the famous campaign was the, the vegan sausage rolls, but they also provide a, a huge range of, of health food and, and juices that they did not provide 18 months ago. And essentially, all Greg's have done is, is respond to what the market was asking for. Um, and ultimately, I think that's what challenger banks have done and what incumbent banks have, have failed to do and, and need to do going forward. Uh, ultimately, the, you know, the incumbent banks have a huge amount of resources to to put into into R and D, into innovation, into brand building, um, and and those resources, challenger banks don't necessarily have access to. So, uh, the ball is in the in incumbent banking brands' court. Um, they've got all all the resources to to improve their own standing in, in the marketplace, and and they should use those effectively. Okay, well, let's let's see where it takes. So, Declan, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, actually, just continuing on the theme of banks, they are front of mind, particularly for people who are trying to move house or were hoping to perhaps get a mortgage. So, Laura, what what's happening in the world of the property market? And because it seems to be that um, the mortgage market suddenly sort of shut up shop. So, uh, should we be worried about what's going on? Yeah, so it must be such a tough time for people that were planning to move house and that are partway through the process of, of selling and buying at the moment because the government's come out and advised people not to move if it's possible. Um, but what we are seeing is that nearly a third of all mortgage deals that are available out there have been pulled from the market in the past three weeks, which is a massive change in the market. Um, and so what we're seeing is that a lot of banks and builders and societies and and mortgage providers are now limiting their available products to those where you've got more equity um, in the purchase. So where previously people could buy quite easily with 5% or 10% deposits, um, now most of those mortgage deals have been pulled and you need at least 25% um, deposit to be able to buy with with the current products that are available. So that's what Nationwide's doing. Um, A lot of other providers, so people like Santander, Halifax, Virgin Money, have gone even further and they require you to have a 40% deposit uh, before they're willing to offer you a mortgage, um, which is a, a big change. You think it's sort of them saying they're very concerned about the economy and sort of people's ability to to pay pay their mortgage or I, I would have thought they would so have taken a longer term view of this but yeah, so it's a bit, I think it's a blend of a few things. Basically, um, one on a kind of practical level, these mortgage companies are really busy at the moment. So um, they're facing staff shortages due to the virus, like lots of other people, with people either self-isolating or being ill. Um, and that's kind of affecting lots of companies, but also mortgage companies. So it means they've got fewer staff on hand to help deal with inquiries. 
But they're obviously also getting way more inquiries for those people that are partway through the process of of getting their mortgage and and worried about what's going to happen with that. So they've just got this real staffing crunch. And their logic is that one way to limit incoming inquiries and, and new mortgage deals is to only go for the kind of highest quality mortgage deals out there. So they're overrun with business at the moment anyway. So then why not limit their their new mortgages and new offers to those where they've got a bit more certainty and a bit more quality? But obviously, the other side to that is also there's a lot of uncertainty in um, house prices at the moment. And the market is really slowing down. Not that many people. Well, no one's going to be going out viewing new houses now, are they? Some estate agents are trying to do kind of virtual and video viewings of houses, but it's unlikely that you're going to spend probably the largest purchase in your life based on maybe a slightly shaky Skype call. So um, the market's <laughs> going to dry out, which means it's harder to, to value house prices. So if um, these mortgage companies require a larger deposit, it means they're taking on less risk. They're effectively owning less of the property. And so if house prices fall, then they're not going to see their, their portion that they own um, affected. So it's a bit of a, partly it's a practical kind of operational thing. And partly it is that valuation point that you talked about. What about if you've um, exchanged contracts but not yet completed? You know, is there anything that government is doing to give you a bit more time, uh, avoid sort of deals falling through? Yeah, exactly. So the the government are encouraging people to try and try and work this through and to to not move even if you've reached that crucial exchange stage. Obviously, that requires a lot of negotiation, depending on how long your chain is. A lot of negotiation with everyone in the chain to agree that that you can delay that further down the line. Mortgage companies are trying to help. They're um, extending um, the the offer periods for mortgages already agreed. So they're extending that by three months because the last thing you would want is to have gone through all of that mortgage application process. Then your sale be slowed down because of the current virus and then your mortgage offer run out and you have to go all the way back to the start and reapply, particularly when your mortgage might no longer be available if you're only going in with a 10% deposit. So that's probably a really key point to make is is these mortgage deals that have been pulled and these um, increases in the deposits you need are only for people that have yet to to secure their mortgage deal. It doesn't affect those that have already got their deal. But yeah, it must be such a such a nerve-wracking time for for house movers. And just finally on this week's podcast, I thought it'd be worth flagging the rise in scammers. So, Laura, what should people be looking out for um, if they're receiving sort of strange emails and text messages? So scammers are basically seen this time as an opportunity to prey on lots of vulnerable people. And so um, already in March, Action Fraud, um, which is the kind of police department that deals with fraud cases, said it's seen a 400 percent increase in scams that have been linked to the coronavirus. Um, And scammers are basically identifying that there's going to be lots of people who have hit financial difficulty, have lost their job, um, who might want to access money or get um, get access to their pension early, for example, or to profit from the recent market falls with investment um, products. And they are targeting those people, um, but obviously in order to steal their money rather than to actually help them. Um, so it's really tough and um, 
and I mean, scammers never get a good rap, but this feels particularly terrible at a time when the country's in crisis to really target these people. And I think what's important to point out is it's not just vulnerable people who could be affected. Lots of people, when they think about people being scammed, they think that it's just the the kind of most vulnerable in society and that they themselves wouldn't ever fall victim to that. But scammers have got so sophisticated now that it's easy for um, people who think they're pretty savvy or pretty internet savvy or um, aware of the kind of obvious scams is, is now quite easy for them to be caught out too. Well, have you got any examples of what people might get? Uh, I presume, is it things like um, sort of money from the promise of money from the government that isn't true and stuff like that? Yeah, it's things like that. Um, HMRC have already flagged that there's um, some some texts and emails going out that look like they're from HMRC saying, oh, here's a here's a tax return as a result of coronavirus for you or here's money that's available from the government. Um also, we'll see people doing scams that they've done for a long time, which is things like, oh, here's how you get early access to your pension um, for free, or we'll give you a free pension review in these tough times. And those were always the case, but it's just thought that with the coronavirus having hit people's finances, people might be a bit more susceptible to that because they might feel like they need access to that money and, and be more likely to kind of fall down those traps. So there's some kind of tips that you can look out for. Anything that's seems to be too good to be true that you think is a really good offer probably is too good to be true um the main way you can protect yourself is to never ever respond to anyone who can contacts you completely out of the blue so whether that's via a text message whether that's a phone call whether that's an email anyone who contacts you directly and you haven't had any contact with them before is likely to be a scammer it's financial advisors and, and investment um, houses don't typically go out just uh, blanket emailing people offering them these great investment opportunities. Um, and the other thing is not to be rushed into a decision. So lots of scammers will say, oh, you've only got a few hours or you've only got until tomorrow to make a decision on this because the deal's filling up quickly and, and otherwise you're going to miss out. And that's a tactic to stop people checking with family and friends and getting that sense check. And that's particularly the case at the moment where people might not be in contact with family and friends quite so much because we're all um, at home more and so don't be rushed into a decision if, if you think something looks like a good opportunity then take your time to research it because no genuine um, no genuine investment product or financial help would have a time-bound element to it so thanks very much for listening this week as ever if you've got any suggestions about future topics or general comments then just do drop us an email at podcast at ajbell.co.uk Please leave a review of us wherever you listen to your podcast as well. It does help other people find us. Um, and we'd love to just know what you think of the, the production. So thanks very much. Um, please do stay healthy. We'll see you all next time. See you next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.